Cartier-Bresson, the photographer, used to say that uh, photographing people was appalling, that it was some sort of violation of them. Uh, it was even barbaric, he said, because you were essentially stealing something from them. You were imposing something on them. He sensed the inherent unfairness of this transaction. All writers, all storytellers are imposing their own narrative on something. I mean, all art in some ways is a lie. It looks like a picture of something, but it isn't that thing. It's a representation of that thing. Your documentary is, is on some level going to be a lie. It's your, your construction of things. I mean, I'll say that right now if you'd like. Yes, it's yes, true. please, yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, your, your documentary is itself going to be a lie. It's a construction of things. It's how you wish to represent the truth and how you've decided to tell a particular story. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the film podcast that considers the source. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and in this episode we're discussing two short films, Chris Marker's 1990 film Cat Listening to Music, and Corey Archangel's 2009 film Arnold Schoenberg Opus 11 No. 1, Cute Kittens, along with our feature, Amir Barlev's 2007 art world documentary My Kid Could Paint That. A quick heads up to our listeners, My Kid Could Paint That is a dense film that forces you to consider a fairly diverse collection of ideas, and so our discussion is less focused on objectively critiquing the films and more focused on Carrie and I attempting to engage and explore the ideas presented. Also, the artist responsible for the candy installation we briefly mentioned is Felix Gonzalez Torres. We're both fans of his work, and we'd recommend him to anyone trying to sort out on their own what exactly qualifies as art. Anyway, here's Carrie with the plot summaries. Chris Marker's Cat Listening to Music is exactly what it sounds like. Arnold Schoenberg, Opus 11, Number 1, Cute Kittens, is a supercut of cats playing notes that correspond to one of Arnold Schoenberg's atonal compositions. And finally, in My Kid Could Paint That, documentarian Amir Barlev examines the Olmsted family as they deal with the sudden fame of their four-year-old daughter Marla, whose abstract paintings are taking the art world by storm. But as the media follows Marla's rise, doubts begin to form and even the audience has to question whether Marla is the prodigy her parents make her out to be. The first third of My Kid Could Paint That is largely focused on Marla as a prodigy, whose artistic talent appeared out of nowhere and stuns those who see what it produces. Since an audio podcast isn't an ideal means to show you her art, our first clip is an interview with one of Marla's patrons and her feelings about Marla as an artist. Here's that clip. I don't know what to tell you. I'll probably start to cry. I wish I could capture the spirit that I had when I was a child. Those wonderful, blissful moments to be innocent. That's what it was like to be a child. I would give anything to have that back again. So that's what Marla has right now. 
Any, any questions? What in the devil? I've had my own art school for 23 years. Whatever this is, then you know what you have to do there. I teach a lot of adults, a lot of children, but I've never seen anything like this. I think that she definitely has a gift, something that's very advanced that I really can't explain, um, you know, such as Mozart. In fact, Mark had asked me if I would want to teach his daughter, and I said, no, not at all. Why mess with something that's so wonderful? Things get complicated when 60 Minutes airs a story raising doubts about Marla's artistic ability. Our second clip is the section of the 60 Minutes story, excerpted from the documentary, that throws suspicion on the Olmsted story. Here's that clip. Ellen Winter is a psychologist who has studied gifted children we showed her several of Marla's works. It's absolutely beautiful. You, you could slip it into the Museum of Modern Art and absolutely get away with it. Are you serious? I think you could. People would say, belongs here. This is the work of a gifted artist. We showed her more than 50 minutes of videotape shot by us and by Marla's parents. Winner's enthusiasm immediately turned to concern. <laughs> but this is eye-opening to me to see her actually painting. And suspicion. Eye-opening in what way? Because she's not doing anything that a normal child wouldn't do. She's just kind of slowly pushing the paint around. After our interview, the Olmsteads agree to let us place a concealed camera where Marla paints so she wouldn't be distracted by its presence. It took Marla about five hours of painting spread over the course of a month to come to this point. It's not bad. I saw no evidence that she was a child prodigy in painting. I saw a normal, charming, adorable child painting the way preschool children paint, except that she had a coach who kept her going. That coach is Marla's father, who's often present when Marla paints. He can be heard on this tape directing her, sometimes sternly. Paint the red. Paint the red. You're driving me crazy. Paint the red. <laughs> you paint, honey, like you were. This is not the way it should be. Her parents told us this painting was a struggle for their daughter, saying she seemed stuck. Still, during the month or so that the hidden camera was in their home, they claim Marla was able to finish these four other paintings off camera with no problems at all. Ellen Winter also believes the painting captured on our tape is less polished than some of Marla's previous works. How do you explain that difference? Well, I can only speculate. I don't see Marla as having made, or at least completed, the more polished-looking paintings, because they look like a different painter. Either somebody else painted them start to finish, or somebody else doctored them up. Or Marla just miraculously paints in a completely different way than we see on her home video. Marla's having her first West Coast gallery opening later this week, and it will include this painting captured on our hidden camera, which has already been sold for $9,000. Our third clip, focusing on the aftermath of the 60 Minutes story, features gallery owner Anthony Brunelli and Marla's mother, Laura. Throughout the film, Laura comes across as the protagonist most grounded in reality, and this clip should give you an idea why. Here's that clip. Sales have kind of come to a stop. They uh, have interest, but uh, haven't sold a painting since um, two days prior to the airing of 60 Minutes. It slowed down the demand for the artwork, which 
I, I mean, personally, I feel it's a blessing. I really do. The whole 60 Minutes episode was terrible. It was such an awful portrayal of us as a family. But I remember the night that it aired, I caught myself just laying in bed smiling with almost relief that it was over. Mark feels, you know, we were wrongfully financially injured, which, you know, we probably were, but at the, at the same time we kind of, I mean, the money came not through any hard work or, you know, dreams or anything of our own. It just sort of happened. So, you know, things that just happen like that can very easily unhappen, and they did. And I'm fine with it. Anthony Brunelli is a key figure in bringing Marla's artwork and story into the mainstream. So it's surprising when, late in the film, he gives the sort of monologue that makes up our fourth clip. There are a lot of pauses in Anthony's speech, presumably due to it being assembled from a larger interview with Barlev. I edited a few of those pauses down to keep the clip from dragging, but otherwise it's presented exactly how it plays in the film. Here's that clip. One of the great things about Marla is that people are questioning. And, you know, in a roundabout way, that was really my whole intention from the very beginning. I've always felt that modern art is somewhat of a scam. I've been a realist painter all my life, and I'm a photorealist painter, and there are times it could take me nine months to do a painting. And then you read about auctions and records set at Christie's and Sotheby's for these abstract paintings with swatches of paint like this and that, and they're selling for millions of dollars. You know, the most I've ever sold a painting for was $100,000, which is a lot of money. It's an awful lot of money. But when you look at the amount of time that I put into that painting compared to what some of these paintings are selling for, that I don't get. That I just don't get because my kid could do that. When I came across Marla's work, it was almost like a gift of get from God. It was almost like me saying, you know, screw you, modern art world, I've got something for you. Now, finally, I've got an in to this world that I've never understood. Where I've never understood this abstract work and the value that it's gotten, I do understand the value of marketing and how it is that, that why one person's painting could be a million dollars and another person's painting could be a hundred dollars and they could be the same type of painting that's when it all started coming together. I said, I think I have history in the making here, and I have something that is going to turn the art world on its ear. And if I do this right, I'll succeed in that. And I did it right. And I called the right people, and I got the right kind of attention. And it would have continued on, but it stopped because of the 60 Minutes piece. You know, the paintings stopped selling, basically. In case you were concerned, I didn't forget our short films. Cat Listening to Music and Arnold Schoenberg, Cute Kittens, both use a classical composition as the entirety of their soundtrack. But while Cat Listening's piece, Pajaro Triste by Federico Mampu, is immediately emotional, Opus 11 No. 1 by Arnold Schoenberg has a more adventurous listener in mind. For our final clip, here's Pajaro Triste, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of My Kid Could Paint That.
Okay, we are back with another episode of Secret Cinema, another uh, twosome, just me and Carrie. <laughs> twosome, I like it. Yeah, it works. Uh, but uh, this week we have another uh, more complex episode. We haven't done one of these with uh, short films in a while, but we're going to talk about My Kid Could Paint That, Amir Barlev's 2007 documentary. And first, to kind of set up the conversation for that one, we're going to talk about uh, well, let's start with the short film uh, Cat Listening to Music by Chris Marker. Chris Marker directed La Jetée Sans Soleil. He's one of the most important experimental avant-garde art filmmakers ever. And he made Cat Listening to Music in 1990. And Carrie, had you ever seen this before? No, I hadn't. What did you think of it? <laughs> I uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of experimental films and, and short films from living in Ann Arbor and going to the Ann Arbor Art Film Festival. So um, seeing the movie, it reminded me a lot of um, George... Uh, oh, Kuchar? Kuchar, yeah. yeah. Um, especially those short films of his that we saw about his cats. He had a lot of uh, intimate moments with his cats. But with that, uh, with Chris Marker's movie, uh, I thought it was very simple, but beautiful. The music really complemented just watching his his composition of his, supposedly his cat, reacting to the music. Um, and it's almost interesting in that his cat wasn't reacting to the music. Yeah, it's clearly like uh, his cat is on the piano. Something might have been playing, but the piece of music is superimposed. And so it's we're seeing this, like, uh, not to jump too far ahead into our discussion, but we're seeing this kind of artistic representation of a cat listening to music, even though it's kind of... Uh, like what would be loosely called a documentary because it's just like he's clearly making like a home movie but it's very subtly and very uh simplistically not to insult it uh just like he's very minimalist in his techniques here he's creating this like artistic experience of a cat listening to music and this we see like the cat's eyes closed or at one point like the cat falling asleep as we hear this beautiful composition by it's said in the end credits uh, end credits Federico Mampu. Uh, and I don't know what the piece was. It doesn't say the piece, but the piece is very beautiful. It is very emotional. And so if it were a different piece of music, maybe it wouldn't have the same effect, but the emotion of the music uh, by the movie being called cat listening to music, this emotion carries over to the cat and the mystery of what a cat experiences kind of it's it's bouncing off those two things and so even though it's very simple like we said it's just a cat laying on a keyboard with this music playing and uh, cuts of the room or close-ups of the keyboard it still has like a surprising effect on you yeah i i think and we'll talk about this more as we delve into the other uh, short films and especially that my kid could paint that. But I also think that there's something to be said for the title of the movie. Yeah. Because the title gives you the context in which to watch the short film. And I think if it was called something like... Like Cat and Piano or yeah, something. Yeah, or even like Untitled Number 17 or whatever. I don't think it would be as, as uh, effective. Yeah, it would be like... If it was called, say, Cat and Piano or something that doesn't directly suggest this idea, you could assume that this movie is about how cats have their own will separate of humans, and despite the beauty and calm of this piece, the cat experiences its own thing. The cat 
falls asleep because it's not interested. But by calling it cat listening to music, we're putting a story on what could otherwise be like a totally non-narrative piece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and then the next, uh, the next thing that we watched, or rather uh, listened to, was uh, Schoenberg's. Uh, what, what's the title? Well, of them? I'll set this up just because we. Um, the other short film we watched was a piece by this filmmaker artist named Corey Archangel. And I, I saw this, we watched this in college. That's where I heard about this piece. But Corey Archangel is very interested with uniting low and high art, like finding a way to combine them. The one I always think of, um, it, they had this piece at UMMA in Ann Arbor, their art museum. Uma. Uma. But it was, uh, it was a version of Guitar Hero reprogrammed to only have this composition from the 60s by Lamont Young. Uh, and it was, the, the piece was you hit one note and you were supposed to sustain it as long as possible without hitting it again. You just hit it hard and hold the note. And he put this avant-garde John Cage-esque composition into Guitar Hero. And so that's the sort of high art, low art melding he does. But with the piece uh, that we watched, which was, roughly titled Schoenberg Cute Kittens, uh, Corey Archangel is taking this very uh, avant-garde piece of music called, uh, well, it's a composition by Arnold Schoenberg, which I don't really know much about him in particular, but this piece is Opus 11. We specifically listened to and watched the film corresponding to Opus 11 number one. The point of the composition is that it is an atonal composition. It sounds random to the untrained ear. Someone who'd never really thought about classical music or had no musical background would hear it and think it was just a mess. But it is very intentionally composed to sound to, well, to be atonal. You couldn't accidentally do this uh, unless you... Uh, the only way you could really compose something like this is to understand atonality. And yeah, it's so funny because, it, it, like you said, it's purposefully sounding random or atonal, but there's the behind it, there's this like history of extreme musical knowledge yeah. that you have to have in order to create something that's purposefully atonal. And consistently atonal because um, you could say you were just messing around on a keyboard, you probably couldn't create something that was intentionally atonal because you would accidentally create tonality you would accidentally do or part, get into melody or a or scale or something sure. on, accident, on accident but to create a piece that has none of that you have to always know like all right i pick this note and so what note couldn't possibly correspond next and continue <laughs> that way i obviously don't have a very complex understanding of music but the core of what i'm saying is true trust me uh so the short film we watched takes this piece by schoenberg and well, the piece is called Schoenberg Cute Kittens, and we see Opus 11 number one being performed, I guess, uh, in quotes, by kittens. And Corey cats. Ar uh, cats and kittens. Yeah. But Cory Archangel went on YouTube and found videos of cats stepping on piano keys or keyboards and found the cats playing the exact notes that are in the atonal composition 
and then edited the cat videos together so that even if the melody isn't exactly the same, it's the same pattern of notes being performed. Yeah. And so what we are seeing and hearing with this short film is a composition that on its own sounds random if you don't understand what it is, and then is transposing it into a medium where it is being performed by a creature that doesn't know what, it, like has no knowledge of music at all. It's not possible to train a cat yeah, to play Yeah, they're randomly this. stepping then, on the keys. And then further randomizing it by not even having it be one cat. It's like a multitude of cats. Yeah. But... That a super still cut. still comes to make the same avant-garde composition, and so uh, and two we're we're taking the level of authorship from Schoenberg, where the original is his, and then it's still his piece, but it's been assembled by Corey Archangel, but Corey Archangel did not perform it in any way. It was performed right. by the kittens, and then Corey Archangel took what they did and made it into art, but. And then, <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> he's, in a way, he's adding another layer of purpose to the music. Because like we said, in order to create an atonal opus, you have to purposefully create it. And Archangel is taking the purposefully atonal music and purposefully supercutting random cats playing music on a piano, or accidentally stepping on... Uh, piano keys on YouTube and supercutting it to create a purposeful atonal yeah it's piece. Like purposeful <laughs> purposelessness like yeah. it's 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 kind of I don't know it's it's again, like genius and also why is he doing it <laughs> but I mean we said why he's doing yeah. it and so it's genius but it's also genius in a very frustrating way and to get into why let's delve into our feature, My Kid Could Paint That. So, Carrie, let's see. I want to hear you start on My Kid Could Paint That. Well, before we dive too far into My Kid Could Paint That, we should talk about what it is overarching. Basically, uh, this this director, Amir Barlev, he has created other... He went on to, to do the Happy Valley documentary about Joe Paterno and... Uh, well, the Penn State. The Penn the State. Scandal, Sandusky. Yeah. Um, uh, which is a great documentary. Recommend you watch it. He also just released The Grateful Dead. It's called A Long Strange Trip. Yeah, I think it's like eight hours long or yeah. something. Uh, he also did uh, The Tillman Story, which yeah. has uh, some relevant material relating to this one. But, but anyway, so he uh, followed this family around. There was this uh, girl in upstate New York... Her name is Marla, Marla Olmsted, and at four years old, she was gaining notoriety in the art world as being a prodigy of abstract uh, painting. I think she was working in acrylic, but they alluded to her using oil as well, so it was kind of hard to tell in the movie. But anyway, she's an abstract painter at four years old, and this guy, he somehow got in with the family and was able to get basically unfiltered footage of them as a family and experiencing Marla's uh, road to fame, but then also fall from grace. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, why this movie is so interesting and great is because it gets into uh, what makes art important 
and what is truth, uh, which are very important themes in the art world, uh, and also authorship is, is, uh, as, a, as a theme. Um, but anyway, my thoughts on this film, I think it's, I think it's a great documentary. I think it brings up important questions to ask yourself when you are uh, looking at art or, as I mentioned, um, what is the importance of authorship? Like, who who not only decides what art is important, but also does the person making the art matter? Does that person, as the author, influence the art? And... In this movie, I think that Barlev is arguing that, yes, it is important, and it influences how you view art. Well, and also, because uh, I agree with everything you're talking about, I think another key uh, element to this movie that makes it so fascinating is that it is a portrait of a large number of people. Like, there's some very specific main characters, but we get an idea of a lot of different characters who fill this world, and almost all of them reflect some sort of cognitive failing or uh, <laughs> inabil <laughs> denial or inability to process things correctly or just, like, this front to back, everybody who appears in this movie or speaks uh, has something glaringly wrong with their thought process and it's not necessarily like just these people but it's these people in a reflection on society as a whole and it's really interesting getting into these topics and then watching a movie in which seemingly everybody kind of gets it and kind of really doesn't it's like failed foresight well, it's not like failed foresight, because I don't think anybody has foresight in this. I'm saying, I, oh, No, I'm yeah. saying I'm the part of the parents, of Marla's parents. I think they they failed at foreseeing where this notoriety could go. Well, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, everybody here thinks they totally understand everything. Like okay. they, they think they understand just their life. They think they understand the art world. They think they're very smart. And okay. they're all very obviously, at least when put in the context of this movie, all everybody is clearly wrong or not thinking about something. And they're letting, or, or they're denying. Like, I, I mean, I, I could also presume too that some of these people do realize the things that we're about to point out and just are denying it to themselves for various reasons. But there's so much failure uh to actually step out of anything that's happening and realize the insanity of it this is like a genuinely insane confluence of events and seemingly nobody actually approaches it in like a fully realistic way and so it has nothing to do with the parents because that is very normal and believable that the parents would not see the full reality of what's happening to their sure. kid. I'm saying stuff like when we talk about, and to jump ahead a little bit, uh, the art collectors who are like, well, I don't know who actually painted this and I'm not actually happy, but yeah, I have to spend $20,000 on a painting. And so I'm going to yeah. buy it. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. That's fair. I, but I think one of the more interesting things that the movie does is it, it plays the dichotomy of the two parents through personal interviews with each of them about this experience that their daughter's going through. Oh, yeah. Well, and that, that's what I'm saying, too, is both of them obviously are like... They're like approaching it in different ways, even though they're on the same team, and you know, so to speak. But, well, I guess broadly what I'm saying is this movie, if, if you remove all of the stuff about art 
uh, from it, it is a great example of the continuing failure of modern American uh, minds. Like we, we see this sort of narcissism that's not overwhelming. Like I wouldn't say these people are narcissists, but the sort of narcissism that's like, no, I made a decision, so it's definitely right. And it's it, I like people are given wiggle room in this movie to. Uh, make sense of their point and they stick to their guns instead of trying to find the thing that works or they just, I don't know, we'll have to get into specifics to talk about this because okay. it has nothing to do with the idea of normal, everyday human fallibility. And we're talking about like this like broad cultural sense of people <laughs> thinking they're so much better because of the art world. The art world is such an intellectual or thought of as like an intellectual zone, something that's not for real Americans because like, sure. like the woman says when she looks at the painting. Well, yeah, like I, I, I thought of the instance where the reporter was talking about how her mom always hated Pollock because she thought that when she would look at a Pollock painting, Pollock was basically saying, you're stupid and I'm not because I understand this and you don't. Um, and I think that that's uh, another attitude that I think like the art gallery owner and the parents really take on is they say, well, I know Marla and these are Marla's paintings and your inability to grasp that is really not my problem. Well, uh, let me start with this because you, you brought that up and this is as good, as, uh, good of a way to jump in as any. We see, and I guess I kind of talked about how it's, not, it, we're, it's more than just typical human fallibility, but like just to jump into it, here's an example of typical human fallibility that's kind of strung throughout the movie, which is people, women talking about their daughters. And how, because of how they feel about their daughters, this is how they feel about a different situation. We hear it with the journalist who's, like, so upset about the 60-minute story about the painter because it's critical, but she is at the same time a journalist who is okay with writing about it in the first place, even though she's the one who's like, yeah. oh, I told her, are you sure you want your daughter to do this? I would be worried about my daughter, but then still writes the story anyway. But then when someone does... The journalistic thing of like we looked at the story and we saw holes in it and here are the holes we saw she gets upset about it yeah that's funny. because her the daughter is being attacked and so she's not thinking about huh. it as a journalist i didn't think yeah. about that like the fact that the journalist recognizes that she's a journalist first and a mom second like instead of approaching it i mean no like, but that's she thinks of herself that way but in the material we're presented she acts as a mom first yeah yeah that's that's a funny uh i didn't i didn't really think think about it that way but yeah you're right she uh approaches the the documentary as saying like well if as a mom i would never do this to my daughter but as a journalist i'm gonna exploit the fact that this woman is willing to do it to her daughter yeah well and then the 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 main the mom in this maria olmstead she's probably oh, the, laura laura sorry yeah this um one, i uh, said maria during the yeah <laughs> but uh laura is presented in the movie as probably the most like sane person sane grounded figure in the movie but there's just little stuff where you can tell like again this is typical human fallibility um she is very much on her daughter's side the whole time she at no point ever questions this but i believe it's her who gives us the detail that her and mark the husband don't work the same schedules right that and i wrote down that so uh the two parents their names are laura and mark laura is a dental assistant 
Uh, and Mark is a night manager at a Frito-Lay factory. So they, yeah, they do work totally different schedules. It sounds like Mark works like probably midnight to eight and then Laura works, you know, like nine to five or whatever. And so we bring in this, like the overarching question of like whether or not Marla made these paintings on her own or whether or not her father helped them, uh, there, there's this clearly established thing of like in their lives, there are times where they're not together. And there's this issue of why are some of these paintings looking like this and why are some of them looking different? Did the dad help her? And there's literally like 50% of her work week, there is times where her husband is with her daughter and, and she's, she's not, not around. Uh... And again, like I'll just step, I'll step back from the movie and say this for a second. It is 100% possible to me watching this movie that both the paintings are entirely fake except for the ones we see get completed or that uh, Marlo works on these paintings to a certain degree and her father either gets them started, finishes them, or some combination of both. But the daughter does probably work on them to some extent. Yeah, I would totally like, agree with that. I I... I think that the, the documentary, and we can get into this more, especially on the note yeah. that the movie ends on, um, but I think the documentary sets up a very good argument that Marla is not responsible entirely for most of yeah. the paintings. Well, and that's that's a crazy thing, something we'll have to, we're going to get into more later in the discussion, which is that it really shouldn't matter at all. And that's why it should <laughs> it should be easy for the mom to when confronted about this see like like a, like the reasonable like the coldly logical response I guess I would say is that when confronted with the idea that well maybe your husband is helping your daughter the coldly logical response should be like well why does that matter it's still a beautiful painting I'm still proud of my daughter for working on it well, and she's four years old she can't complete everything but it's still her painting yeah like you could argue it that way and well and if they had all if it is true that the dad was helping Marla if they had just changed the narrative to like yeah Marla and Mark work on it together we're a mom and dad or a, a dad and daughter team that is still, like, a, a story that the media would want to tell. But, and that's the other thing about this movie, is that, is that a story that they would actually ah. want to tell? And that's where we get into the tricky part, and why this movie is so interesting overall, is when we take this human fallibility and these, like, these, like, instinctual uh, things about us that cause us to think incorrectly about certain situations and put it into the extremely uh, high stakes, pretentious, rich person world of modern art where there's so much pride on the line. And uh, like we, I kind of mentioned that woman before who's like, well, I don't know if I even like this painting, but sure, I have to buy a $20,000 painting, so I'll buy this. And she's talking about her daughter-in-law, like, my daughter-in-law is going to hate me because I picked this one of all the paintings. But I have to get but it. I have to get it. It's like, um, why do you have to get it? <laughs> yeah, why do you have to get it? Uh, it? Like, there's, so, okay, I guess we should, since we're kind of steering it into this, let's talk about the art world. Sure. Well, and I, I think the other, one of the things the movie does well is they interview the, I think he's like the chief art critic at the New York Times. Yeah. If he's not the chief, then he was, or he's an important member of the New York Times reporting uh, in art. And he talks about the ideas that 
Art used to be very transparent. It used to tell a story. Um, and if it doesn't explain itself, uh, there's this rejection that happens within the art world, uh, especially in modern art. Um, but the idea behind Marla's paintings being so appealing is that her story is that she's innocent. She's this young, innocent, you know, they, they really try hard not to label her a child prodigy, but that's what they're arguing that she is, is she's this abstract child prodigy in the art world. And because her abstract art is really not transparent other than she's a child painting these, you know, abstract shapes and colors, that's enough for the art world to get behind it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I often go to museums with people or like even my family. I remember we went on a uh, vacation to New York City and we went to the Met and I really wanted to go to the Modern Wing. And I remember walking around with my family and my dad being like, I could do that. And my brother being like, oh, yeah, I could do that. You know, pointing at like Mark Rothko or yeah. uh, Frank Stella or, um, oh, who's that guy who does all the the panes of glass that are just like clear panes of glass? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, things that are very simple and geometric, um, you know, like Piet Mondrian. But the thing behind it is that they did it first. You know, yeah. they, yeah, maybe you could do it, but the fact that you didn't, uh, <laughs> is kind of the point. Like the, it's kind of like the, the, uh, the old, the old story of the film where the train comes at the camera and how they said the first time it showed in a movie theater, uh, when people saw the train coming, they like jumped out of their seats because they didn't understand the concept of like a moving image. And so they thought the train was coming at them. And so that movie is considered like a, an important landmark in art mm -hmm. because it's, uh, it did all this. But if someone now made an equivalent movie, like somehow had never heard of that movie and like, like, I don't know, like, some country that, like, only recently, like, let's say North Sentinel Island, got, <laughs> a, like, someone from there got a camera and, like, filmed the equivalent of that, people would be, like, it, people wouldn't see it as art because they're, like, well, someone already did that. You, you might have been able to do the same thing, but there's a history of other people beating you to it, and so what is your new contribution or what is your tweak on this existing idea right and the, the other thing they they talk about uh or the art critic touches on is how especially now in the modern art scene um one of the major themes that's coming through is alienating your viewer on purpose so you're kind of like sticking it the way he phrases it is you're sticking it to the people who are patronizing your art. Yeah. And so, you know, you're making... The bourgeois. Yeah. Yeah, you're making some kind of cultural critique that is supposed to upset somebody. And that's another thing that's appealing about Marla's paintings is she's not trying to upset anybody. She is a four-year-old girl. Yeah, the quote who, from the movie, I'm a happy girl who loves painting, is the way one yeah, of her... Yeah, and who can't get behind that? Yeah, one of her patrons describes her that way. And so they're, they're saying, like, I see the four-year-old yeah. girl, I see the painting... The four-year-old girl's personality, of course, is represented yeah. by this painting. One of the words they use a lot is pure. Yeah. You know, innocence. Like, that. one of the women that they interview who's an art teacher in the local community, she says, like, I don't think I can talk about it without crying. Yeah. Because, 
you know, there is truth behind the fact that when you are a young person, you don't have all this, like, baggage or neuroses or self-doubt. And so the fact that she enjoys painting is a very pure thing because she's a little girl. She doesn't really know any better. It's something that she enjoys doing. And so if these paintings are her paintings and they're like her true expression of how she's feeling as a little girl, that is beautiful in itself. And the fact that she has talent as the film tries to argue, or her parents try to argue, I should say, um, that is what is up for discussion in the movie, is whether she actually is doing it or not. And if, if she's not doing the painting, then that takes away from that theme of pureness and innocence. And this is another great thing that the movie gets into, probably my favorite element, which is, does it matter who like is it uh, like I, I, the one quote that someone says is the thing about abstract art is people argue that there's no way of judging objectively what is good or bad yeah and they show clips from like uh and it's john stossel so john stossel sucks but the, the the piece that he's doing is relevant where he's asking an art critic like what do you think of these pieces and the art critic raves about one and john stossel was like that was done by a child, and the art critic is like, "Oh yes," and John. I, kn was I like, knew that. And John Sussman was like, "Okay, so, but then why is it art? Like, and, and that's it's that issue of this art is apparently objectively incredible. People are paying thousands of dollars for this. Like they yeah. talk about the fact that in New York, one of uh, Marla's pieces gets twice the minimum that a piece would usually get in New York. So yeah. she's making like 15000 off Rather of Rather than 8000 But the second the idea is introduced that this four-year-old girl is being helped by her father, the piece is valueless. Like people... It destroys in, the narrative. And, and, and so, but that's the thing is, if art is objectively critiquable like if art is if there's if you can do the death of the author thing with the piece of an art and look at it and say this piece of art is objectively good because of this then the the narrative of the author shouldn't matter and if the art if the narrative of the author does matter then the quality of the art doesn't mm. because it's the same reason why like a, a napkin scrawl of a Picasso could be worth millions because it doesn't matter whether or not that napkin scrawl is the equivalent of Guernica. It matters that it was made by the person who made Guernica. Yeah. And it's that, that's, I think societally the narrative behind art matters. That's where yeah. art gets its worth. And unfortunately worth is determined by money. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and I think culturally, Art is, it can be valued objectively. Yeah. You know, it, it shouldn't matter who the artist is or what the story behind the art is. But sometimes, and I know that you can agree with this, but for me, sometimes knowing the story behind the art makes the art better. Oh, yeah, like, sure. Like, I always think of the, I can never remember his name, but the artist who uses light bulbs to demonstrate his relationship with his partner, yeah. who died from AIDS. What? Who, do you remember? I never remember his name. It's I can't remember his name either. But he has a lot of pieces. I think he even he's the one that has the piece 
in the Art Institute of Chicago where it's a pile of candy. Yeah. And you take a piece of candy. You know, people who are walking through the gallery are more than welcome to take a piece of candy. And what he's essentially saying with the piece is that as you take a piece of candy, you're not only participating in the art, but you're also helping him create this idea of depreciation. And it's kind of representing how you can take something from others without even really knowing it and yeah. how slowly over time, you know, uh, it can erode and uh, it's saying a lot of things. But, you know, that helps knowing his backstory of like a lot of his artwork is about the idea that he watched his partner suffer and then pass away from, uh, AIDS. Deals, from yeah. AIDS. And a lot of his artwork deals with that. If you don't know that, then you see a pile of candy. It's like, okay, candy. But at the same <laughs> time, and here's kind of another little gray area that's interesting to consider, is with that pile of candy, if you know nothing about it, you don't even know that the artist's name, you're just told it's a piece of art, and the point of it is that you go and take a piece of candy. Like, that's, that's as, as explicit as it's made. The act of you in an art museum eating a piece of candy in that strange circumstance is an artistic experience. You, sure. Even if you don't understand it, you have experienced the art. The art has affected you in some way. By you literally consuming it, even though swallowing an item is not thought of as the traditional means of experiencing art, it is still an artistic experience, but... If you were to look at one of Marla's paintings with no context at all, would you necessarily have that same level of, of, reaction. of reaction or engagement to something that where you're just like, well, there's a lot of colors. It's, it's a good question. Yeah. I think a, a lot of her artwork is beautiful and yeah. it is it is striking in a very abstract way. But I think knowing that, you know, or I should put in air quotes, knowing yeah. <laughs> that a four-year-old made it makes it more worthwhile. It's more impressive. Yeah. And I think if you knew that it was a four-year-old and her dad who were making it, it, it tarnishes it a little bit. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of an example. Not, maybe well, tarnish isn't the right word, but like it, it changes the story. But let's put it in, like, here's a very ridiculous counterexample. Okay. Jay-Z's new album, Blue Ivy, <laughs> Blue Ivy raps on that. Now, would it be better if it was a Blue Ivy album, and if the Blue Ivy album came out and you're like, wow, she's like... It's kind of like rap. It's different from the rap I'm usually used to, but it fits in enough. But the second she's on there on her dad's album, it's like, oh, it's just a child. So this isn't actually impressive. Like, it still wouldn't... When you say it's still... But yeah. you, you'd have to argue, and but this goes back to what I was saying, yeah. you, you'd have to argue that Jay-Z helped her yeah. make that, that album. Like, she didn't do it herself. She's, what, five? Of course, yeah. And so is Marla, actually. Marla is five by the end of the movie. And so is it really that impressive that Blue Ivy made a rap album because her dad is, like, <laughs> the king of rap yeah. and he made the album with her? Like, that's the thing is the Olmsteads are trying to argue that they don't help Marla at all. Yeah. They basically set it up for her, like, hey, here's your supplies, here's your canvas, we lay down a tarp, and then they say, they basically leave her alone. And well, that's the thing that the movie gets at is, no, that's not what is happening. But that's another thing, and I didn't think about this, but psychologists would say that if the parents aren't doing anything, 
then that means they're also not setting up the canvas, providing the means, providing the time, organizing this girl's life around this, which one way or another, regardless of how you feel about the rea like reality of her as an artist, they have to, they should have to acknowledge that she wouldn't be doing this unless it was encouraged. Like her father's an artist. And so a child seeing her father do something is going to replicate what her father does and be interested in it because of their parents. As they grow older, that's when you stop doing that because you become your own person. Yeah. But as a child... You, you realize you don't have to do what your parents do. Which, as yeah, and as a child, you're very re receptive to that. And they created a world for her to be painting. Once she showed the initial interest, it seems like, like you see the, the degree to, in the movie, you see the degree to which the house is set up as an artist studio. Yeah. And when they, she has to do her painting, they have this full space in their basement designated just for that. And I was thinking about like, man, if I had space in my life to paint that conveniently, I would be painting right now. Oh yeah, because it would, it would if it was if it was made <laughs> that easy for me, and if it's being made that easy for a four year old, it's because her parents are doing it for her inherently. To the whole idea, her parents had to help her to get her to this point, and I want to build that into another thing, which is that it's not her parents entirely in charge of this narrative either, because this is where we get into the art world again with the art gallery owner. Yeah, and I think he's a really important character. Yeah. Say. Well, and you keep saying character, but like he's a real person. Yeah. He just like plays this role in the move in the documentary of he's kind of like an instigator. Yeah. Well, he's the one. He he does this whole big monologue towards the end where he talks about like he's a marketer and he's so lucky that he was able to market this story in the right way to the right people because that's the thing. Uh, as much as we are going to pick on, as we have and will continue to pick on the Olmsteads, they're just doing what every parent said. Like we said the same thing with the journalists. They love their kids. They believe their kids are amazing. This is definitely something my parents did to a ridiculous degree. It's uh, <laughs> like, you're great. Everything you do is magic. And then you take that and then you find a third party who can also get behind it. Who also can get behind it. But at the same time, has a gallery, has a gallery Emotive. space. Emotive. Well, not only a motive, but means yeah. to like do something where it's not just like, oh yeah, like the one guy says like, I'll put it in my restaurant, but a restaurant is different from a gallery. When yes. you see a painting in a gallery, it's art. When you see a painting in a restaurant, it's a painting. Like, and that's, and that's the sort of thing. Like if they didn't know that guy. If they didn't have that connection, there would be no documentary. There's no story. It has to have that guy putting in the art gallery and then that guy telling people, here's the story. This is a, he, he says he, he was the one who reached out to the journalist in the first place and told her the story. It's, it's about family. This is a human interest story. And when you put it in those terms, it's not just, hey, some kid has some art here. It's like, oh, this family exists. It gives it importance. Yeah. Well, and um, that's one of the things the journalist says, is she says, she makes the metaphor comparison uh, of media as, is this, like, hungry monster, and it just wants to devour a story until it can't get enough. Yeah. But because of the nature of media, the story has to change to keep attention, and that's what this documentary hinges on. Because I think, ultimately, if this, this documentary had just been about this four-year-old girl who loves to paint, 
it wouldn't be that good of a documentary. It'd be no. like, oh, blah, blah. You know, it'd be one of those, like... It'd um, be like a human interest story on the news, but feature-linked, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be kind of like a boring biopic uh, portrait. Yeah. Because uh, they don't really get into... I mean, how much can a four-year-old talk about... Well, and, and Marla... <laughs> and they and they yeah. purposefully say that, like, she doesn't like talking about her art. At one point, at the very beginning of the movie, uh, somebody asks her, do you want to talk about your paintings? And she says, No. There's, I don't want to talk about anything. There's a really great moment earlier on where Amir Barlev is like directly interviewing Marla as she's putting together this like cheese pizza puzzle. It's like a circular puzzle has maybe like 20 pieces in it. And he's trying to talk to her about artistic intention. Like what are you, what do you do when you paint? Like just trying to ask her questions like this. And as she's refusing to answer these, she is having trouble putting together this 20-piece puzzle to the extent that the, she asked the director to help, and the director stops the interview to help put the puzzle yeah, together. Yeah, she even says, like, I can't do it without you. Yeah, and it's this idea of, like, trying to, like, see artistic forethought, like this plan, because it's it. what makes it art is that it's intentional. Like, if a robot were to make these paintings, it wouldn't have the same story or value. Someone had to intentionally do it, and this girl who supposedly can envision what to do with these massive canvases and plan out these like Mickey Mouse ears or these little doors or things that people read into. But that's part but, of why her art is, is if she is doing it, that's why her art is so great is because it is so unintentional. Like yeah. she's just going with the flow. Well, I know just like having that conversation with her about like, what is your intention? Right. And then she can't even have, she doesn't even have the foresight to see how a cheese pizza puzzle will assemble on her own. Like, right. She needs help with that, but she apparently without any help at all, can do these massive, elaborate canvases that yeah. use, like, 20-plus colors to them. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe the interview where the, the guy who's like, oh, I just had to own one of Marla's pieces. I just saw this piece, and I had to have it. You know, there's this little door, and it's very clear that there's this man standing next to the door, yeah. and then a man looking out of the door. And it's like, it's not clear at all. It's this guy bit, is just putting his own... Uh, his own interpretation onto this four-year-old's painting. And there's a very nice little moment by uh, Barlev in the assembly of the movie where as this guy is describing the little door and the people he sees around it, uh, the, the, we see the painting and we see it zoom in on this door. And the door is there and you could say it's a door. But, but it, it also is just a blue square. It seems, yeah, it seems <laughs> to me more random and it ends up having that image. But then when he starts describing the people, I am at a total loss to see what he is describing. Yeah. There's nothing or in the there. Or the skull that he was talking about. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's nothing in there that... I mean, I, I guess when he describes the baby's head sonogram, it's like the most charitable interpretation of the oh, white yeah. blur that he's describing. But it's like... He very clearly loves this artwork because of these things that he sees, but he's not saying, like, it seems like this. He's putting this intention to it. Yeah. And that's the part that's, like, really, really incorrect. Like, the like he can't just... It's, these people don't just enjoy Marla's works because of the randomness to them. They have to... Like, he isn't this the same guy who puts Marla's painting next to a Renoir bus? Yeah. And he says, I have the old master and I have the young master. Where he's, like, Ugh. thinking of her in the terms of Renoir. Where it's, like, how fucking deluded are these people? <laughs> And that's well. They've bought into the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've, and that's... they've bought into the the story that the parents are saying of 
These paintings were done by a four-year-old girl who's pure of heart, and she just loves painting. Yeah, and I want to I want to put this another another weird example uh, to put something in. Um, remember when it was discovered that Trump University was a scam? <laughs> And, yes. like, how it was kind of a big deal, but uh, we still have him as president, yeah. even though he run a scam college. Yeah. And, like, so it was a big deal, quote-unquote, but not really what it should have been if you discover that a college is basically a, a scam and everyone who went through it was scammed, like, the hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. But people didn't really overact that much as, like I said, he's still president. But... The second a rich person finds out that their art that they have... Paid lots of money for? Well, paid lots of money, or like... But mo more importantly, because it's for them, it's not a lot of money. $20,000 right. is not a lot of right. money. Right, that woman who's yeah. like, well, I just have to buy this because I have to buy it. The, the, yeah, she didn't even want it, but she still bought it. She is not hurting for money. But the second she find they find out that it's like... There's something wrong with, like, the backstory. It, they, like, get very upset. And we saw this in the J.T. Leroy story. And I really want to talk about it there because in the J.T. Leroy story... Which, uh, that, that, that documentary is called Author. Author, the J.T. Leroy story. Yeah. Uh, but the whole thing with that, and I'm, we're talking about fiction uh, instead of art right now but I, there's some important parallels with the fiction with the fiction in uh, the, the jt Leroy created and obviously i know that jt Leroy is not a real person jt Leroy is a fictional creation if you don't know what i'm talking about you should really watch this movie author oh the it's JT so Leroy good story. it's incredible but jt Leroy wrote fiction wrote fictional stories about fictional characters who had things happen to them, and people read those stories. And, and they were, loved They it. loved them. But when it, once it was revealed that they weren't written by a young male ex-prostitute, but were written by, like, a, a middle-aged middle woman. woman, people got really upset. Like, it was, like, a huge thing. It was a huge issue. And granted, lying to someone in fraud is always a big issue, but... It doesn't hurt the fiction. The fiction fiction should not be hurt by what you know about the author because it's fiction. It's the whole death of the author concept of it is still what it is, like a painting. A painting is like a fiction story where it still is what it is regardless of what the backstory is yeah. in theory. It's not like A Million Little Pieces, which was presented like a nonfiction book where the author was like, these are all real things that happened to me. And, and then you find out later, it's not true. No, he was like, he should have just released it as fiction because people clearly responded to it or maybe they just responded to it because of the backstory. But I feel like criticizing art, having such a strong negative reaction to art having a bullshit backstory is a ridiculous uh, thing. It goes back to what I was saying about authorship yeah. and whether the person who makes the art is an important part of how we interpret the art. Because, as I mentioned, like, is it still good art if we know that Marla and her dad worked on it together? Yes. I would argue yes. Like, I still think that a lot of her pieces are beautiful. It just changes the narrative yeah. a little bit. Um, and with J.T. Leroy, his books, which I have not read, which I actually have been meaning to yeah. read, because I think the idea that they aren't written by the person that they're claimed to be written by it makes it more interesting. Yeah, 
makes her a better writer of anything <laughs> that she can like that she could pull that off. Like not just write a story, but write a story from the point of view. It's like it's like what Chuck Palahniuk did with Haunted, but way more brilliant. <laughs> I'm not saying Haunted is Haunted is a pretty bad book, but it's like yeah, it's like what uh like uh, um like uh, so I don't know. I I have a lot of faith. In J.T. Leroy's stories, still holding up. Well, and then, and it also the the idea of the author goes to uh, goes to artists where their whole life they struggled to make art and and be important into art in the art world, and they only gain notoriety after they die, yeah. like um, Confederacy of Dunces guy, yeah. or uh, Van Gogh, or Henry Darger. Yeah. You know, like there's so many of those artists where their story only becomes important once they are out of the picture, because their art stands without them. Yeah, and I think that what I would argue is that. The author is important in the moment, but if the author is taken out of the picture, then art can stand kind of by itself yeah. as objective. I also think that um, the artist being a mystery also is an important narrative that's considered worthwhile in the art world. That's why Banksy is so big. There's a lot of artists like that where their identity is hidden, but their art is not. And that is what makes their artwork more interesting. Uh, there's also, I was just thinking about this too before we get too far away from it. I wrote down the part of the quote someone says about art containing the story of the artist. Like, it used to contain a story in and of itself, and now if it doesn't have that narrative or like that symbolic meaning, then the story is this is it reflects the artist in yeah. some way and so with this movie we see on both sides this issue of pride coming up because art is so inherently personal I and mean, especially when it's abstract art we're not taking away like this the level of skill is taken out of it because we're not judging you on your ability to to it doesn't have to goal. look perfect. It's 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 what do you bring to the table? What sure. what pure artistry do you bring to the table? And so when there's questions about authorship, you are directly butting into the issues of pride of people being like, why don't you just take me at my word? Why don't you just assume these things about me? What is it about me? But then you also see the pride on the side of, like I said, the rich people who are like, it doesn't, they didn't actually lose their life savings, but their, their pride has been attacked because suddenly to, they know in their heart that they aren't as smart as they think they are. They, they were deceived. They don't know as much about art or like, like you said with JT Lloyd, they don't know as, about, as much about fiction as they thought they did. They aren't as good of a judge of character as they assume they are. And they it goes have, back to that quote that the journalist said of like looking at a Pollock and Pollock saying to you, you're stupid and I'm not if yeah. you don't understand this. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, those people thought they saw the art and understood it, and then they found out later that what they interpreted as the truth was actually deception. Yeah. And nobody likes being deceived. No. <laughs> <laughs> even if even if you get a cool piece of art in the in the along the way, you're still gonna feel hurt that your gullibility was taken advantage of. You know? Yeah. That's why people hold grudges. <laughs> and I think that's why, that's one of the interesting things that happens in the movie is, with, uh, so the kind of the turning point in the documentary is uh, 60 Minutes and Charlie Rose do this sort of 
expose story about Marla and whether she actually is painting the paintings or not. And they make the argument that she's not. Uh, and, um, oh, they, they call it ugly journalism. And from that point on, when that story airs, the two parents, Laura and Mark, they receive, like, basically hate mail, yeah. hate, hate emails saying, like, way to go, parents, you've exploited your daughter and fooled the pseudo-intellectuals into purchasing her artwork. Uh, what a brilliant business plan. Or they even, there's one email that the movie reads where it's a guy saying, uh, you know, you'll be lucky when you're locked up in prison and uh, Marla can paint uh, you and your boyfriend in yeah. prison. It's like, whoa, people, you but, are really, why are you so upset? Well, and also, too, in some of those emails, there's people who are like, I'm glad you tricked the the intellectuals and the rich, but you're also going to hell. So it's like, so it's like, this person's like, you're a bad person for doing this crime, but you also did your crime against people I hate, so I hate both of you. Like, this, this thing where it's like, you are also a bad person, email writer, because you are you are so full of hate that you hate both of these people. I always wonder what type of people take the time out of their day to write hate mail. It just seems like such a waste of time. Well, yeah, and I hope those people are writing letters to Trump every day for all the terrible shit he does, or just for, like, like any time, like, I hope those people are, like, hey... Or people who are, like, dumping toxic waste into Yeah, lakes. they're writing to, like, super fun sites. They're like, why isn't this cleaned up yet? I hope you go to hell for this like no those people got so mad because like a painting was made by someone different than they said it's like this is what i'm saying about every every person in this just by being infected by the art world makes them lunatics like even the director you can tell like once the 60 minute story comes out he like really loses his ability to like be objective. Be objective. And and to a certain And he point, even confronts the family yeah. and says, like, look, I need to be honest with you. I have doubts about Marla being the painter behind these paintings. The paintings that you've shown me, that you've recorded of her doing, look different than a lot of her other paintings that are, uh, the word he used was more polished. Yeah. And the parents even say, like, well, I don't know what that means, more polished. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I mean... You can figure it out, <laughs> yeah. what that means. Like, like you could even, like, how did they not think about this hard enough to even just, like, have a reason to do it? But, like, um, yeah, it's... Shit, I had a train of thought. I, I, think, I think one of the effective things that the director does with the parents is he gets them saying, you know, personal truths that actively go against how they're behaving. So, like, the mother, Laura, you know, she countlessly at the beginning of the film says things like, if this ended soon, I, I wouldn't be upset about it. If this doesn't happen again, then that's fine. Uh, I want Marla to be a happy, well-adjusted kid. I don't think that, you know, we need to be doing interviews and allowing people into our home. And all the while, she's got a documentary guy following her. And allowing him into her home and interviewing her daughter. And then, you know, you've got the husband, Mark, who's saying things like, which are total opposite of what his wife's saying, where he's like, oh, we'd love to go to Europe. We'd love to tour the art gallery scene there. Uh, I don't see a bad side to this. Um, you know, he says, 
she's going to definitely sell a painting for $100,000 in the future. I, I can't see that not happening. Um, you know, I, I uh, can't direct my child to paint. You can't do that. Uh, if I was going to direct her to paint, things would be going much more quickly. You know, they say things like that, and then all of a sudden, while she's finishing one painting that they're recording, she happens to finish four other paintings that aren't being recorded. Yeah. And it's like, uh, <laughs> what you're saying doesn't match what we're seeing. And that is what's really interesting that I think the documentary uh, filmmaker captures. Yeah. And that's really, I think, the most damning thing about the, the, the dad, if we're going to assume that he's probably the more responsible of the two for this this like fraud is the insistence on being having the celebrity even when he has these things where it's like oh well she, we can't prove that she's doing this or you if you put the yeah. pressure where cameras see her she can't paint she and it'll be, uh, yeah and like, it'll be just it, so much easier especially with a four-year-old to be like now we don't really want to put this pressure on her you can see the work and everything but it's not really important to us if you believe that she does it we're just supportive of her they never do that they're always they want the people to come they want to be exonerated yeah they that's, that's the thing is and they even say that at the end when the documentary uh director confronts them and says like i have doubts the wife says i need you to believe me yeah why have we been doing this if you don't believe us so they want to you know again own the narrative and i think almost what the worst part is and I got this feeling towards the end, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, Paula, but I think that the husband is not only deceiving, you know, the art world, yeah. but he might also be deceiving his wife. Oh, yeah, that's what I was saying before about them having different schedules. Yeah. Like, that right there is the window where he could be, say, polishing up a piece. Yeah. Where, like, and it doesn't, for him, it could even be, like, a thing where it's like, no, she made it. Just because I finished it doesn't mean she didn't make it. Like right. where it's just true enough, where it, it's easy for him to lie because he's not really lying. In like, his mind, he doesn't think he's lying. Yeah, like because like we said, these this artwork it is fundamental enough, and where it could be something where like she throws the colors down, and because she throws down the right group of colors and doesn't fuck up the the mix because we see a few times where she paints where she puts on a bunch of colors and just smears it into a blur and ruins it but there could be ones where she puts on the colors and the colors are good and the dad's like hey we could do this like put this circle shape here or put this squiggle or something and suggest it to her like you can i don't know it's so possible to see the process which he could be assisting these paintings yeah yeah and well and um there's, there's all the, the moments where the mother is, you know, saying, like, I just want Marla to be okay. Like, if this doesn't happen, that's okay. And the dad, while they're on the trip to New York City, is saying, this is such a great experience for them. I just want them to keep having these experiences. And I, I, you w start wondering at that point, like, okay, is it really that you want your kids to have this experience or that you want to experience this with your kids. Yeah. And that's the thing that kind of uh, they bring up again in the end is the degree to which this movie is also about this child. It, it, okay, let's assume she is making this art. How much of what happens after she makes the art is her being exploited. 
by adults in every degree. Like, like, okay, well, she did this art, so we have to bring her to the art gallery. Oh, well, she did this art, so we have to report on how this four-year-old is actually part of a fraud. Oh, well, she is called a fraud. We got to drag her out again and make her do this video to prove that she's not a fraud. All this stuff is happening, and it's, it's just being forced on this girl who, at the age of four, should not have to deal with these complexities of reality. Yeah. And at least, and very much based on what we see, it doesn't seem like she necessarily understands. We see a lot of, like, and it seems like the most troubling stuff to me in the movie is the footage of the little brother, which we totally forgot to mention. She yeah, has, she a, has little a little brother, brother. And there's references. Oh, man, I can't imagine the complex that the little brother well, has. just imagine as a little kid watching your your older sister, which already there's that, that psychological uh, problem of, like, the little brother, older child thing but then the older child also having like tons of cameras on them and people being interviewed and then you watch on tv reports about how great your sister is and then also all those shots where the little brother zane is like i paint too and like everyone's, I igno- wanna paint. everyone's yeah. ignoring him or like you know marla's like zane also paints and no one cares and like like all this stuff where it's this this kid is being ignored and it really Let's assume, again, like I said, assume that Marla did do all these paintings and you're watching this child, uh, this other child have to just, like, be dragged along through this. Yeah. And, like, and, 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 and I, again, like, we could say, because we're talking about this idea of authorship, this could be part of the authorship that Amir Bar-Lev places on the movie where we're not seeing all the times where Zane is being taken care of in like a really great way to balance this out. But we do see a lot of scene. most of the time when he's on screen, it's the parents talking about Marla or um, Marla and the camera guy. And then Zane is there trying to, to be, get attention, to get attention, trying yeah. to be like thought of like his sister. And it's, it's really sad. That's like the saddest stuff in the movie. Yeah. Well, and and they they bring up the idea of child prodigy and they make the comparison of like yeah, they're they don't really want her to be called a child prodigy because there's a fine line between child prodigy and freak. Yeah. Because as a society, the the uh director makes the argument that we like seeing children be accomplished, you know, performing as adults. Uh, or at an adult level as a child, because we view it as this, like, magical occurrence. You know, it's it's rare. It doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, it's more, like we've mentioned, it's more pure. It's like a, a, a finer way to see something that an, an adult can accomplish through years of practice and hard work. Whereas you see a child do it and there's, like, this instant mas- mastery to it. And that's just more impressive, instinctually. It's just, uh, it's it's like, wow, there's just this intuition that this child has that they can accomplish something that people who've spent years upon years studying it finally can accomplish. Well, and, and prodigies definitely feed into a very American idea of you are just gifted with something. You don't actually, hard work has nothing to do with it. You are just inherently gifted with abilities. Yeah. And no one wants to live with the idea that like, you really, anyone can be good at anything, but you have to put a lot of work into it. Or if you're successful at something, you might be successful because of situational factors that allow you. 
The idea of talent versus hard work. And a lot of people really just want to believe in this world where uh, at four years old you would be so inherently amazing at something that you would just be on the news and become a superstar because of how great you are. And no one wants to think about, like what that would take and what that would do to someone like we child stars have been a thing for such a long time and we still uh continue to bring ch children into hollywood and watch their lives fall apart like <laughs> i think i'm trying to think of the most recent one amanda Bynes is a pretty prominent one for me she's doing year. okay she's now. doing better now but, but she like definitely Lindsay has, lohan well no but even still amanda Bynes had the the classic child actor period of time where her life completely fell apart right because it's not and it has nothing oh, yeah. to do with her it's not like she's a bad person or anything it's just that it, it, whether or not she was like a totally sane person before it was just made we, so much worse we were just talking about this because of uh britney spears of yeah. like who owns you is it the people who are exploiting your skill or is it you and you argued that like when the when you see people act out like that it's because they're trying to say like look you don't owe me i can shave my head or drive a car into a tree or you know uh burn down a house or whatever the case yeah. may be it's an act of like you don't own me and i can do whatever i want because i can't imagine for myself you know like when i was four or five, I'm sure there was something I loved doing. Yeah. Like, you know, climbing trees or, you know, playing outside or whatever. And the idea of having done it at four and five and still doing it now, my interests have changed. Yeah. Like, I'm a different person. I don't, I have, like, varying interests. And so for, for, for parents to say, like, okay, yeah, as a, as a child, you are very talented in this one specific thing that we've discovered for you, and now that's the rest of your life. Like, I, uh, the, the journalist who's also a mom, she makes the argument of, doesn't everybody deserve to be a kid uh, when they're younger? Doesn't everyone deserve to, like, go play and, and live a carefree existence? And... That's kind of the problem with this is the filmmaker is, is saying that the parents have kind of set up this world of like, yeah, Marla, this is what you have to do now. This is the thing that you like doing, so you're going to do it, you know, forever. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning from this that when we did our casual research as to what Marla Olmsted is up to now, it seems like she isn't really painting. No, like, she. I guess she, she still paints a little bit. And she and like the they the the article that I uh, read from 2015 said that they still get like eight or nine inquiries a year about her artwork. Yeah, um, and so she does paint, and she's trained with some people. But she's the article I read where she I think she's like 15. In the article, uh, it says she's more interested in sports. Yeah. This, this, uh, everything that this documentary is all about didn't build to anything for her. This is like right. a big flash in the pan. And hopefully, like, because it ended very soon after the, the documentary's uh, timeline, it uh, hopefully did not affect her too much. Uh, she talked to... Yeah, well, in the article I read, she said she's never seen the movie. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the th but the movie, that's the thing is like, 
it's it probably would be for the best for her to not watch the movie just because of how it makes her parents look. Yeah. But it doesn't really reflect poorly on her in any way. No, like, she's four. She's four, yeah. And it just is like it doesn't be like, oh, she's clearly participating in this fraud. Yeah. It's like, no, she just looks like a girl who likes painting and everyone else has capitalized on what she likes to do yeah like it her first her parents capitalized on it and then the art world capitalized on it and then rich people capitalized on it and then journalism capitalized on it. i think the most damning thing in the movie like you said is is how her parents come across because you know there's multiple scenes where they're trying to document uh marla painting naturally in the house but the parents keep arguing that if Marla knows she's being filmed, she can't be herself and paint. Which, I can get that. I When I'm being observed and painting, I always get a little more nervous and anxious about my skill or what I'm painting or whether I'm doing the right thing or if this stroke should go there and so on and so forth. But uh, one of the most damning things that happens is while she's painting, she regularly says, Dad, you do it now. You paint. Oh, come on, you paint. It's your turn. You tell me what to do. Tell me what to paint, Dad. And uh, I, if that is not clear evidence that her dad is assisting her in painting, then, you know. And we should say, in, in, it's not every time. It's like there's a couple of very pointed times sure. in the movie where it does happen blatantly. But yeah, it's there's it, we could say that it's, there are a few times in this movie where she paints... And there is no direct commanding on screen. But yeah, for the, the, the key times when it matters, that like there is that voice, I guess the, the sort of, if we want to put it in these terms, the dad's authorship over the story kind of we hear it in the the videos of her trying to paint and him being like why don't you mess with the red more why don't you do this like and in those moments or like marla keep going yeah in those moments because it matters so much the dad cannot help himself he's it's not just like the reality if, if she was painting it would be like like, all right, we'll set up the camera and be like, well, Marla, that's not really going to work out, but we can set up another canvas and try that. It's like pressuring her to make sure this one particular one turns out. Yeah. And like, because also if she, if the same thing, you're an artist, Carrie, and I watch you do pieces and they don't work out. And so you don't do anything with them. You start a new one or you come back to something. Sure. And her process, at least in the process where she's, videotape doing a piece front to back is nothing like that. I mean, the one it says it takes her five months to do and she supposedly completes other ones off camera, but then the other one that we see, it's, yeah, the, the coaching is part of that where it's not an artist following their id, it's an artist being told to meet a requirement. And sure. that artist being told to meet a requirement is a four-year-old. Yeah. I want to... Uh tie this all back to the ending of the documentary. Um, and it, it ends on the note of someone saying that this Marla story is really a story about grownups. And it's about um, how writers and storytellers and, and, you know, whomever, we all impose our own point of view onto how we see things. Yeah. And, it, you know, it of course made me immediately think of the Renee Magritte painting the This Is Not a Pipe. Yeah. Because 
all art is uh, something that the critic says is all art is essentially a lie. Yeah. It's a representation of something else. And I think that if you can buy into the lie uh, of some artwork, then it doesn't matter who the author is. But if the 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 truth of a painting is important, or, or any art is important to you, then that might mean that art can't, uh, that for you means that art can't be objectively appreciated. And uh, I think that that is a very grown-up thing, where you have to consciously decide whether the story you tell yourself matters. Yeah. I also, I also want to bring this up. I forgot to bring it up earlier, but uh, in Amir Barlev's film, The Tillman Story, which is a documentary about Pat Tillman, a, a U.S. football player who joined the army after uh, one of the, he joined some sort of uh, forces for the United States. And he went to fight in the Middle East after 9-11. And he ended up being killed and they tried to cover it up as he was killed in combat, but ultimately he was killed by friendly fire. He was killed by... Um, an accident. A, an accident, but the government tried to cover it up as uh, something else. And there's this scene in the movie where it's his, the funeral for Pat Tillman. It's this very, very big deal. And one of the people who comes up to speak is John McCain. And John McCain does this eulogy, and I'm not going to butcher it because I don't remember the specifics, but the key thing is that John McCain talks about heaven and how um pat will go to heaven and in the afterlife something along those lines and then right after pat tillman's brother comes up and speaks and right away is like pat didn't believe in heaven he doesn't say those exact words but that's more or less the point and that that idea of authorship right there comes up again of like with pat tillman's life pat tillman uh was a football player and then changed his story to something else and then when he changed that story to something else people then changed that story and then tried to change it again and again in all these little ways and you bring that up made me think of that radio lab uh episode we just listened to about yeah. the gondolier of there being this first female gondolier but actually it's not a female gondolier it's a trans man who is a gondolier yeah. and he is a man but because he is, uh, uh, his genitals are of a woman, of like, you know, the female sex, yeah. people are trying to own his story as saying that he's the first woman gondolier. And that's incorrect. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it goes back to authorship and like, who owns the story? Who gets to tell the truth? And, and how do, how does each person interpret the story through their own point of view. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier about this this idea of human fallibility is this is not, somehow still, this is not a thing that people keep forefront in their brain, this idea of authorship, that people are trying to tell you a story. Whether they're trying to manipulate you or not, they're still giving you a point of view and expressing facts filtered through that point of view. And this movie is an amazing breakdown of all the different ways that can happen, even just one small subsect of the population. But this is in everything. Like we said with the Tillman story, that there's no part of the art world there, but it's the same issue. And Carrie talking about the gondolier, it's the same issue. This is very big, overarching stuff. And um, yeah, I guess I'm kind it of, can be applied to things yeah. outside of art. 
Yeah, it's and it's really worth considering, and it's a very human, a very frustrating human flaw that we become aware of this every once in a while, but we don't keep it. It's not something that culturally is important to consider the source or consider the voice. Uh, and Yeah. Actually, I just want to say this really fast. Uh, I work in the startup world, and the big thing in the startup world, uh, in order to get you know funds or investors to uh, buy into your product or invest into your future, every uh, venture capitalist or angel investor or uh, mentor will tell you that you have to have a story. People aren't going to buy into your product unless they know your story. So even if you don't have a story, like, like I'm just going to make up a product. Let's say that, um, you know, you uh, create uh, something that makes toilets smell good or something. So, you know, your story could be like, one day I was in my house and, uh, you know, my, my bathroom just stank and I was having guests come over and I really needed something to make it smell good in there. You know, this is a ter that's a terrible example, yeah. but the, point is, <laughs> the yeah. point is you've got a story that sells why you created your product and why other people should buy into your product. And so the idea of having a story, it's not just in the art world, it's in the business world, it's in the political world. Like, you know, a lot of politicians rely on having a story in order to get votes or to get people to buy into why that they would be a good politician. A perfect example of this, we could say all candidates in the 2016 election. Uh, what was their story versus what was the reality? Uh, I think this, yeah, this is a very, yeah. very universally applicable thing. Yeah, it's all a representation. And so I think my teachable lesson is that as a uh, member of humanity, we all need to decide whose uh, representations we believe who's we buy into, while also being able to take a critical eye and applying that when necessary. Because sometimes authorship matters. Uh, you know, I think that it, it is important to be objective in, in a lot of things, but I also think that being objective means taking out pride from the equation, yeah. taking out uh, your, your need to be right about something, and... Those are very human things and human emotions. Like you, you, I take pride in certain things for myself and I don't like to be tricked. And I think that that is where authorship becomes important is whether you feel like you are okay with being tricked. Yeah. And I think, I guess my teachable moment, uh, cause that is a pretty all encompassing one. It's yeah, definitely sorry. very, no, it's very true. It's just that. <laughs> Uh, you need to be able to see something and separate from authorship or the story behind it, be able to, for your own sake, uh, evaluate objective value. Like, look at, like, you shouldn't need to know anything to be able to make up your own mind. And a lot of these situations with authorship are affected by people who do not have this inherent ability to weigh the facts, to think logically. And if you watch this movie, I think that's a really good thing to see is how many of these people find themselves in like illogical situations, uh, in small scale ones, but 
illogical situations nonetheless that could have been avoided by stepping back and just evaluating the reality instead of trying to seek uh, uh, this this story or try to like fall in line with certain ways things have to be. And uh, yeah, you need to you need to be aware of the world you live in and you need to have strength in your own convictions and one of those convictions you need to have uh, very well developed is the conviction that not everything is how it appears yeah and because things aren't always how they appear you have to have that agreement with yourself of what you want and what you need and what you're willing to believe and i think that's why i love magic yeah because i don't need to know the explanation behind it i just want to believe that there is there's some explanation behind it but i don't need to know it to enjoy it yeah like would it really hurt uh, a darren brown bit if after you saw the magic trick you were like oh but Darren Brown actually works with a team of people who help figure out how to make these magic tricks amazing. Yeah, it's like his uh, chess game uh, experiment where he he pulls off the stunt, but then afterwards he explains how he does it. And even knowing the explanation, it almost makes it better. Yeah, because it's the, the issue of magic is the moment of magic is what's amazing. And any good magician goes out of their way to be like, hey, this is fake. So when it blows your mind, you're going to have to wrestle with the disbelief. Yeah. And that disbelief is part of it. Whereas art and fiction and so many things, the belief is what's important. And like falling head over heels for it is what's important as opposed to that like, at, like you heard the woman at the very end. I know we, we just said our final thoughts, but to wrap this up, it's important to bring up the woman who paid $20,000 for the painting she didn't want, who talks about how... It, her, it makes her head hurt looking at it because her brain isn't relaxing. It, it's engaging with that. And she sees that as a problem, but it should not be a problem to see something that forces you to think. Yeah. Like, I get it. I get sometimes you need to relax your brain, but if you want to not be taken advantage of and you want to enjoy your life to the fullest, you really need to prepare your brain for being challenged yeah because that's where all of the reward comes from (laughs) i also really quickly before we wrap up i want to recommend a couple movies that complement my kid could paint that uh in addition to the short films we watched i personally really love uh movies that challenge my idea of what art is and what it can be and there's some other really great documentaries that do that one of them which i'm sure a lot of people have already seen is Exo Through the Gift Shop, uh, the um, the documentary that supposedly Banksy produced. No, he definitely made it. <laughs> yeah, he made it. Um, but it, it just, it's a great uh, movie about, uh, again, authorship, but also who decides the value of art and why is that value imposed on the art. Um, and then the other one is F for Fake. Yeah. Uh, which is an Orson Welles movie. And that movie, every time I watch it, it just blows me away. Um, they interview a man who can basically forge any artist's style. And he claims that he has a piece in every major museum around the world um, imitating another artist. Like, at one point in the movie... Uh, they ask him to do uh, a Picasso like sketch, and he does one, and then he throws it in the fireplace <laughs> because it's like that invaluable to him. 
because he has a skill of imitation, but he doesn't view it as important. I just love that. I think that that's so, so interesting. And my recommendation that I want to bring up is uh, relating to Exit Through the Gift Shop, after you watch that, you should watch uh, the HBO documentary Banksy in New York, which covered... Oh, yeah. uh, Banksy had a... A, what would we be called? An occupation of New York, where over 30 days, he once a day had like a piece that would appear somewhere in the city and people would have to track it down. And the importance of watching this movie is this movie is primarily about the people tracking down the artworks. And it is such a great portrayal of how awful art connoisseurs and people in the <laughs> art community are. It is just these people who have nothing better to do for a month then spend their entire day searching for art and then battling over it and all these like deeply, deeply pretentious moments between them. And it again gets into ownership. Yeah. Because there's scenes where, you know, Banksy, he created this piece of artwork on private property and people come in and take it. Yeah. <laughs> And stuff like that. It just it, it's another complimentary portrait to the general insanity of people in the art world, and uh, it will only make your stomach churn more. <laughs> oh, it's so it's yeah. so great. It's but, so um, interesting. But yeah, that's really it. Carrie, do you have anything else you wanted to say? No, I uh, other than watch this movie. It's really interesting. Yeah, and hunt down these short films. I will yeah. link them on the website. But uh, this has been the Secret Cinema. Thanks I'm, for thanks for listening. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corona. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo short films at www.vimeo.com/slash Paolo Carone or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com/slash Paolo Erasmus. Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lathan Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>